Thank you, Steph, for that admirably brief introduction. <laughs> Quite refreshing. And thank you, too, to Dara Jindalee for providing us with uh, a moment of worship, which is absolutely the right context within which to open and explore the Word of God, as we shall tonight. On last Sunday night, you may have seen or heard of the Compass program, which was on Jesus the Jew. Now, I was one of those interviewed for the program, and the interview was done quite some time ago. And I suppose I was interviewed for about half an hour, and the snippets of that, of course, appear in the, the final edited product. But inevitably, the question of the role of St. Paul came up in the interview. And I say inevitably because it has frequently been alleged, shall we say, that St. Paul it was who was really the founder of Christianity. You know, they say Jesus preached the kingdom and what we got was the church. Not quite true, of course, but I do understand why people would say that Paul found, rather than Jesus, founded the church. I don't think it's true, but I understand why that might be said. Because Paul, if he isn't the founder of Christianity or the church, is, as it were, the midwife. He brings the church to birth, and it's that that I want to explore tonight. I want to explore the story of Paul, because if you explore the story of Paul, you explore the story of Christianity coming to birth, born from the womb of the synagogue. And that's crucial if we want to understand who we are in this very different world, in this very different age. Paul did not live in a secular age as we do. But there are things that we who do inhabit a secular age can learn from him and his story. And in a moment when we talk about the new evangelization, the need for a new surge of gospel energy, it's certainly worthwhile going back and looking at that first surge of gospel energy in which Paul is such a crucial figure. As I say, he's the kind of midwife. What do I mean by that? Christianity begins, unquestionably, in rural Palestine. It wasn't primarily or initially an urban phenomenon. Jesus begins in Galilee, which was considered hick country. It was decidedly rural dangerously exposed to Gentile cultures, pagan influences. So there Jesus starts as a wandering preacher of what he calls the kingdom and gathers about him a band of wandering preachers, the disciples. Eventually he will come to Jerusalem, but that's not where he begins. It's where he ends in one sense. It's where he will die and rise from the dead. So Christianity begins as a rural phenomenon. And there is no doubt that the spirituality of Jesus bears much of the stamp of the countryside. It's a fascinating contrast, the spirituality of someone like Muhammad, who was absolutely a son of the desert. 
In many ways, his is a desert spirituality. Jesus comes from the green land, the soft hills, and the lake. And his is not a desert spirituality, it is a spirituality of the green land. So in that sense, he's a country boy. However, Christianity, once it leaves Palestine, and Paul will be crucial to that move, once Christianity leaves Palestine and enters the Mediterranean basin, it becomes primarily an urban phenomenon. In places like Philippi and Thessalonica, Corinth, eventually Rome, the great urban centres of the Mediterranean basin. So the question is, how does Christianity move from being initially an ur- a rural phenomenon to becoming in very short time essentially an urban phenomenon? And a crucial part of an answer to that question is the Apostle Paul, Shaul, to give him his Semitic name. Born in Tarsus, certainly of Jewish background, but a man who was at least bicultural, bilingual, Paul was from the first a very mixed bag. And it's precisely that cultural and linguistic mixture that will equip him uniquely for the unique role that will fall to him as the one who will in fact take Christianity basically into Europe. And that's the story that I want to explore tonight. Now you may think you know Paul. I did when for the first time I was asked to teach a course on Paul. You like me can probably not remember life without Saint Paul. You think you know him. But I invite you here this evening just to step back and perhaps to presume what is likely to be true, that you don't really know St Paul. Because there are all kinds of misconceptions, half-truths, about the Apostle Paul. And I want to cut through them tonight and show you something of the man of whom we know an extraordinary amount for the ancient world. The ancient world did not have the same senses of individuality and personality that we have. But Paul comes across in the texts of the New Testament that bear his name as an extraordinarily vivid personality, most unusual in the ancient world. If you think of the Gospels, we don't know who wrote the Gospels. They are anonymous texts. I know we say Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But if all we had were the Gospels, we wouldn't know the names of those who wrote those four texts. So the Gospel writers are essentially anonymous, but Paul has got such a name such a personality, such a presence. He's anything but anonymous. He dictates most of his letters and occasionally when he's in a a fit of white-hot anger he grabs the pen from the scribe and says, I'm going to sign in big letters my own name, Paulus. So, the man himself becomes a word of God speaking to us now. Paul and his story somehow embody the word that God spoke and speaks. In fact, in this song that we have just sung, trusting in the call to be the living word of God, Steph and Rebecca wrote the song, and I presume sung it as well, 
That is radically Pauline. The call to be the living word of God. Not just to hear it and speak it, but to actually become the word of God. That's really the story and, and, and the mystery and the magnificence of Paul. He says very early on in the letter to the Galatians, when he, he's dictating the letter to the Galatians, he's riding high in the saddle and he's slapping his credentials on the, uh, the desk because time and time again, as we shall see, Paul faced accusations of being a fraud, false apostle, counterfeit, all of that. So time and again he has to state his, his credentials as an apostle. And early on in this, in this letter when against his opponents he is stating his credentials in no uncertain terms, Paul says, when God was pleased to reveal his son in me, if you want the Greek, enemoi. Now, down through the ages, scholars have read that and said, that can't be right. He mustn't have said enemoi, even though all the manuscripts have that. So, very often, it's been changed to when God was pleased to reveal his son through me. Now, that seems to make more sense, doesn't it? God was pleased to reveal his son through me. I don't think that's what Paul said at all. I don't think it's what he meant. He meant when God was pleased to reveal his son through in me. In other words, Paul becomes the revelation. Now he may not have inhabited the secular age as we do, but that call is no less the call to us in this secular age to actually become the revelation. And that doesn't mean you have to be perfect because Paul is a flawed temperament and personality in all kinds of ways. Some of them blindingly obvious when you read his letters. So I just set that over the, uh, the doorway into this reflection that we are dealing with a man and his story, but in dealing with this man and this story, you are dealing with the revelation which has taken flesh in the man and his story. And that remains as true now as it was way back then. It's rather a sacramental sense in that Catholic understanding. We say that, that the, the Eucharist, for instance, is not just a sign of something, it actually embodies that which it signifies, the presence of the risen Christ. That's why we talk about the real presence. In a sense, it's a proto-sacramental understanding of himself and his mission that you find in Paul. In one of his earliest letters, he talks about the gospel. We give thanks to God that you have been with us from the, the beginning of the gospel. And when you look carefully at the way he uses that term, the gospel, He's not just meaning something written on the written page. He's not just meaning a message. He actually means he himself and his mission team. They don't just speak the gospel. They actually become the gospel. And this is what the church is called to be, not just to speak the gospel to a secular age, but to actually become and to be the gospel. The gospel isn't just something you can write with a pen on a piece of paper. The gospel is the presence and the power of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And Paul very early on comes up with his most extraordinary description of the church as the body of Christ. Now don't just sit back and say yes of course, it's one of the most extraordinary descriptions of the church that's ever been known. 
But what he's getting at is we actually become the presence of the power of the risen Christ. In that sense, we become the gospel. So, don't presume you know him. Free yourself of your prejudices. And let's try and meet Paul tonight, here in Brisbane, as if for the first time. Let's look at the first episode in his story, as it were. By that I mean the story that reaches from the Damascus Road experience and will lead him to Antioch. Paul, we have seen already, on the road to Damascus, the persecutor, a figure of power, and in that moment he is encountered by the risen Christ and knocked flat. He's stripped of power and this will be the story of his whole apostolic journey until the day he dies. Paul will be more and more stripped of power but in the midst of that experience he will be empowered by Christ and that's why he he comes to say things as extraordinary as when I am weak then I am strong. When I am powerless, then I am powerful. So knocked down on the road to Damascus and he hears the voice say from heaven, Saul, Saul, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? Now Paul would have been entitled to say, but excuse me, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting them. But Jesus says you are persecuting me. In other words, if you persecute my followers, you persecute me. And that's in that moment Paul begins a journey that will lead him to describe the church as the body of Christ. Christ is his followers. His followers are his body. They are him in that sense. And that's why Paul will spend the rest of his life, all his energies and gifts, formidable both of them, building up these communities because there is no other way in which the body of Christ, the presence and power of the risen Christ can be built up in the world. The communities will become everything for Paul, more of which in a moment. After that experience of encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul always claimed that he was a genuine apostle and plenty of others said you're a fraud, you're a fake apostle because you didn't, ever, you didn't travel the roads of Palestine and with Jesus, you didn't know him from the beginning and it's highly likely that Paul never met Jesus. There's no indication in his letters that he knew Jesus personally or met him but Paul always said that that Damascus Road experience was exactly the same kind of encounter with the risen Christ that happened to the apostles and the story of which we read at the end of the Gospels, where the risen Christ appears to the the apostles who have abandoned him and then commissions them to go forth to the corners of the earth. Paul said that my encounter and my commission was exactly the same as theirs. I am a true apostle. But there were plenty in the early church who said, rubbish, nonsense, you're a fraud. You're a fake apostle. After that experience on the road to Damascus, he goes briefly to preach Jesus in Damascus. 
and it nearly costs him his life. So they're after him from the first. Until the day he dies, the shadow of persecution will fall across the path of Paul. And he will have to interpret that. What does it mean, this rejection? What does it mean, this persecution? And to interpret the the experience of rejection and persecution, he turns to the prophet Jeremiah, using the scripture to interpret his own experience, because Jeremiah, you see, was rejected too, persecuted. And people said he's a false apostle because God's rejected him. That's why he's being rejected and persecuted. But eventually what they came to see was that Jeremiah, in fact, was a true prophet precisely because he was rejected and persecuted. The false prophets did very well. They ran around telling people exactly what people wanted to hear. Life was comfortable for them, not for Jeremiah. As he says, every time I speak, I have to howl violence and ruin. He pays the price, but he's the true apostle. And Paul says, my experience of rejection and persecution shows that I'm a true apostle. But the other false apostles, they don't bear, as he says at the end of Galatians, they don't bear on their body the marks of Jesus, his ultimate credential. He had lots of scars, Paul. And at the end of Galatians he says, these aren't my scars, they're the scars of Jesus. They're my great trophy, my great credential. What's he mean? The scars shine like the sun. The risen Christ loses none of his scars. They're all there. The only difference is they're transfigured. The emblems of defeat become the trophies of victory. And the proudest thing that Paul could flaunt, slapping his credentials on the desk, were those scars. The wounds that had healed and now shine like the sun. I bear on my body, he says, the marks of Jesus. And people have said, oh, he must have had the stigmata. It's got nothing to do with the stigmata. He's simply interpreting his own suffering, rejection and persecution, not only in the light of Jeremiah, but also in the light of Christ. It's another way of saying, I am the revelation. These are not the marks or the scars of Paul. They are the scars of Jesus. After he hightails out of Damascus, let down in a basket from the wall. Great vision that. Paul in a basket being lowered. He hightails it off for quite some time into the desert. He calls it Arabia. It's not Arabia. It's what we would call modern day Jordan. Paul goes out into the desert for quite a long time. Now we know nothing of what he did out there. My own surmise is that he was trying to unpack this overwhelming experience of encounter with the risen Christ that turned his whole religious cosmos on its head. He's trying to to grapple with the question, what's it mean? What am I supposed to do in response? So he goes out into the desert, listening, grappling. And then he, he emerges out of the desert and he goes, and we know this for sure, he goes to Jerusalem. Only for two weeks. Now, first of all, how does he make contact with the mother church in Jerusalem? Because he would still have been regarded with enormous suspicion as the former persecutor. Why should they trust him? Paul is led to the Jerusalem community and finally to Peter with his unique authority 
by the man we know as Barnabas, whose real name is Joseph. Barnabas was his nickname, son of encouragement. Barnabas is the diplomatic bridge across which Paul makes contact with the Jerusalem church. And he meets with Peter in Jerusalem for the fortnight he's there. Now, why would he want to meet with Peter? I think even the text suggests that there are two reasons. First of all, he wants to tell Peter... Now, everyone agreed Peter had received a unique commission from Jesus himself. So he has a unique authority. He wants to tell Peter his story. Not to hear it from others. I'm going to tell you my own story and my own interpretation of my story, the fruit of my desert grappling. But he also needs to hear from Peter stories of Jesus, particularly if he had never known Jesus personally. If you wanted to know more about Jesus personally, to whom would you speak? One of the first disciples, one of the first called Peter and bearer of this unique authority received from Christ. So I think they meet in Jerusalem for a fortnight to to swap stories. But they also come to a tactical decision. Things are too hot for Paul to hang around. So they agree on a, a, a tactical withdrawal. Paul will return home to Tarsus and that's what happens. He goes north, up through Lebanon and around into southern Turkey. Southeastern Turkey is where Tarsus is now. So Paul basically goes home. And it seems to me, doing my computation, that he stays in Tarsus for some years. We don't know what he did. Was he married? He could well have been. It would have been odd for him, as a Pharisaic Jew, not to be married. He may well have been a, a widower. One can only speculate. But he goes back to Tarsus. And the question is, how did he ever re-emerge onto the stage of history? He could have vanished forever. Made a life in Tarsus, goodbye Shaul. And how different history would have been. To understand how he re-emerges onto the stage of history, you have to know what happens in Antioch. In Antioch, for the first time... The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, is preached to non-Jews. There'd been a tentative reaching beyond the Jewish community when Philip, we're told in Acts, preaches the gospel to Samaritans who were kind of half-Jews. But up in Antioch, which was the third city of the Roman Empire, it's not big news today, but it was big news back then, up in Antioch, the unthinkable happens. The gospel born from within Judaism is preached to the Gentiles by Jewish Christians. Now why do I say unthinkable? Because the whole fundament of the Jewish religious cosmos was separation. The separation of Jew and Gentile. The the, the universe as it were, the religious cosmos was unthinkable without that separation. Therefore Jews and Gentiles didn't eat together They didn't speak, they didn't communicate in any way, but here you have Jewish Christians in Antioch, big city, preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Well, you can imagine how the alarm bells ring 
in the mother church in Jerusalem. And there are key figures in Jerusalem saying, stop, wrong way, go back. So the crisis is such that the mother church in Jerusalem, the leadership, decide to send one of their most trusted members to see what's going on in Antioch and to make a discernment about it. Is this of God or not? And the man they choose for this crucial task is again Barnabas. Barnabas is the hand-picked delegate of the mother church in Jerusalem. He goes to Antioch, he looks at what's happening, does a review, and he comes to a first crucial discernment. This is of God. He himself was a, was a Jew from Cyprus, a Cypriot. So Barnabas says this is of God. But then he makes a second crucial discernment. He sees that this is a volcanically energetic scene and things could go off the rails. We need the right leadership in this community. We need the right people on the leadership team. And he thinks, well, who can we we recruit for this, this task? And then he thinks, ah, Paul, perfect, speaks Greek, knows the Gentile world, impeccable Jewish pedigree. He's perfect for the task. So Barnabas, we're told, goes personally around from Antioch to Tarsus and knocks on Paul's door. Paul opens the door. Barnabas, what are you doing here after all this time? I've got a proposal to put to you. So Barnabas sits down with Paul and says, I would like you to come and be part of the leadership team in Antioch to work this scene that is so new, so controversial, so energetic and so full of promise. What does Paul say? Okay, I'll come. And Paul returns with Barnabas to Antioch and there he becomes part of the leadership team. Eventually in Antioch they decide, there's such energy in this community, they decide that they have to take the gospel beyond the shores of Palestine. This was another crucial decision because once the gospel left Palestine as it does it from Antioch, the first ever Christian mission outside Palestine, Once it leaves Palestine, the gospel's on its way to Brisbane and wherever. So it's a crucial decision. Again, in undertaking that first ever Christian mission outside Palestine, they need the right team. So who do they choose as the leader of the team? Barnabas, who had stayed in Antioch. He's a crucial figure, Barnabas. He gets kind of written out of the New Testament, but don't be fooled, he was crucial. So he leads the first ever missionary team outside Palestine, who's uh, sort of the vice captain of the team? Paul. He's not in charge initially. And then the third member of the mission team is my old mate, John Mark, who will eventually rat on the other two, abandon the mission and return to Antioch early. Never trust a Mark. (laughs) So off they go. It's only a tiny step. They go, in fact, to Cyprus. 
Barnabas' old home turf. Nothing terribly adventurous in that sense, but they go to Cyprus and then they do a circuit of southern Turkey. In terms of distance, it's not far, but its symbolic import is inestimable. They come back eventually to Antioch, their base, and they, they make a report to the community. You know, imagine we're the community here, and Barnabas gets up and Paul gets up to give their report. And what do they say? God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now what does that mean? It means that the Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. Now this is crucial, so tune in. <laughs> the question was, is Christianity just another Jewish sect? There were many Jewish messianic sects, and Christianity looked like another one. But once the gospel is preached to Gentiles, it begins to look a bit different. So are we a Jewish sect, or are we some new distinct, though related, intervention by God. Now, once Paul and Barnabas are saying God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, it means they can walk through the door of faith into the church. They don't have to walk through the door of the synagogue to get into the church. In other words, they are saying implicitly that the church is not just part of Christianity, is not just part of Judaism, it's something new. Our roots are in the synagogue, of course, in Judaism. Absolutely. But we are something new. Therefore, the Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. For Paul, this is one of the things that I did say on that Compass program, for Paul, the question was not what to do with Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians stayed Jews. They completed their journey, their uh, Jewish identity, in coming to Jesus. The, the question for Paul was what to do about the Gentiles. Did they have to become Jews in order to become Christians? And the, the answer that Paul will come to, and comes to early, and it will cost him plenty, this, is that they don't have to become Jews. They can walk straight through the door of faith into the church. Now, once they say that, and once it's accepted in Antioch, something extraordinary happens again. The Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians sit down and eat at the same table. Now that was scandalous to Jewish sensibilities. But they had to do it if they were going to come to the Eucharistic table together. You see, you couldn't have one church and two tables. You know, the Gentile mass over here and the, and the Jewish mass over there. It doesn't work. So Peter, with bearing his unique authority, comes down to Antioch and he sits down with Gentiles and eats. Even Peter... Now this must have really run against the grain with people like Barnabas and Paul and Peter, devout Jews, all of them. But they do it because they believe that God has knocked down all the walls, all the barriers. So there's Peter sitting down at the one table in Antioch. But then some of the more conservative members of the Jerusalem community come down to Antioch too and what they see what's happening. They walk into the dining room and see Peter, Paul and Barnabas sitting down at the same table with Jews. And they are appalled. They say, stop! This can't be. You, you Jewish Christians can't sit down with Gentile Christians. In other words, they're saying implicitly that Christianity is a Jewish sect. So this is another crisis. 
I mean, it's not, the church has known crises from day one. <laughs> so what happens? Peter and Barnabas decide on a tactical compromise. They say, all right, we won't, we won't sit down with the Gentiles anymore because it scandalises our brethren from Jerusalem. We have one church, but we'll have two tables to keep the peace. So a tactical compromise. What does Paul say? No. And therefore you have the great brawl of Antioch. Paul talks about it in in Galatians. He says, I I stood eyeball to eyeball with Peter and said, you're wrong. You don't understand the implications, the consequences of the gospel. You're being inconsistent with the demands of the gospel. You're re-erecting the very walls and, and divisions that God has knocked down in Jesus. Now this is serious stuff because basically they're disagreeing about the nature of the church which has all kinds of implications for the understanding and practice of mission. At this point, Paul faces the most crucial decision of his life. Will he just give in and agree with the tactical compromise that Peter and Barnabas and plenty of others have favoured? No, he won't. That's just not him. Will he just go home? So I should never have come to Antioch in the first place. I'm just going back to Tarsus, back to private life. I'm out of here. Does he do that? No, he doesn't. What he does, and this took courage and cost him plenty, he decides to set up his own mission. He decides to go his own way. And you can imagine what his opponents were saying from the first. You're a sore loser. You're a lone right ranger. You're, a, you're an empire builder. You're not a team player. So off Paul goes, but he goes with two, or first of all, one crucial recruit. The man we know as both Silas and Silvanus. Silas was his Semitic name. When he goes into the Gentile world, he uses the common Roman name Silvanus. Now, he was a very highly esteemed member of the Jerusalem community and a prize recruit, therefore, for Paul. So Paul recruits Silas, or Silvanus, and then he recruits the, the third member of the core team of his mission. Paul, by the way, once he sets up his mission and it gets underway, he presides over or leads a large and complex missionary team. He doesn't just go on his own. You've got the core group of Paul, Silvanus and now Timothy. Now Timothy's young and he has a Greek name, Timothy. But his mother was Jewish. She had married a Gentile, a Greek-speaking Gentile, pagan, But because Timothy had a Jewish mother, according to Paul and to Judaism, he was Jewish. There was only one problem for Timothy, he wasn't circumcised. Paul has him circumcised once he recruits him for the leadership of his mission team. Why? Because Paul didn't want 
to give the impression that he was saying that, that Jews didn't have to be Jews anymore. The fact that he circumcised Timothy was his way of saying, Jews have to stay Jews. It's not about the Jews, it's about the Gentiles. They don't have to get circumcised. They walk through the door of faith. But Timothy's a Jew. His mother was obviously not that devout or scrupulous, but nonetheless he was Jewish for Paul. So there you've got the core, the core team. Core group, Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. And you see their names time and time again at the start of the letters. From Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. The core group. Off they go. Paul says, I'm not going to go where others have gone before me. I'm going to go into new territory. So th- this guy is a serious pioneer. But even that decision to go where others have not gone fed that perception of him as, as, as a lone ranger, an empire builder, not a team player, and so on. They make their way across Turkey. And then when they get to the Dardanelles of Gallipoli fame, Paul has, we're told in the Acts of the Apostles, a kind of a visionary experience of someone from the other side of the Hellespont, as it was called, that thin stretch of water that leads up to the Bosphorus or the Marmara, saying, come across and preach the gospel to us. This is someone, a Macedonian, we're told, someone from the other side of the Dardanelles. And Paul then, having heard this voice, makes another crucial and faithful strategic decision. He crosses from the Roman province of Asia, to what we know as Turkey, into the Roman province of Europe. Paul takes the gospel to Europe. And again, the, the, the historic significance of that cannot be overstated. You begin to see more of why I say if he's not the founder of Christianity, Paul is the one who gives it its, its institutional shape in all kinds of ways. That's why I say he's, he's more like a midwife. Once he gets into modern-day Greece, he crosses the Hellespont. Again, it's a very thin stretch of water, but symbolically it, 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 it was vast. He lands in Philippi, and there he founds his first European community that will always occupy a special place in his heart, because it was his first And Paul, in the end, these communities that he will found, they were his credential. The success of his mission and its acceptability to others depended totally upon him founding, nurturing, consolidating these communities. And they were always fragile, believe me. You know, there was no golden age. Paul had to fight tooth and nail to found and consolidate these communities often in the face of, 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 of real crises. He founds a community in Philippi. He then goes south and founds another community in Thessalonica. Now, how did he found these communities? What was his strategy? He seems to have gone first to the synagogue and there have begun his preaching mission. So again, he could use the Jewish network to get a foot in the door. 
But however, however he did it, these they were small communities. These are not thousands of people, not nearly as big as this gathering. These are small communities, so they're fragile. But Paul's whole mission, and think of the risk he's taken in launching the independent mission, it all depends now on the survival, indeed the flourishing of these communities. Eventually, coming further south, he comes to Athens, the great capital, the spiritual, intellectual and artistic capital of the Hellenistic world. For Paul, this would have been a real highlight. This was, in a sense, his greatest moment to come to Athens. And he stands up on the Areopagus. Chapter 17 of the Acts tells the story. And he preaches a form of the gospel that seems to have, in his own terms, failed. I think we can say that Paul's mission in Athens did not succeed in the way his mission in Philippi and Thessalonica did. Why? Because we, we don't know of any Pauline community that was founded and survived in Athens. We don't have any letters of Paul to the Athenians, do we? We do to the Philippians and the Thessalonians, and we will have the Corinthians a bit further south. I think, in fact, he failed in Athens, and this would have again been a, a moment of crisis for him. How high his hopes had been, how low his achievement to be. They laughed him to scorn up on the Areopagus where all the great ideas and spiritual insights of Athens were shared. Paul then leaves Athens and goes south to Corinth and there he licks his wounds but ponders why he, he failed. He certainly founds a community, a large and energetic and troublesome community in Corinth. And in writing to them in the first couple of chapters of the first letter to the community at Corinth, I think you see something of why his mission in Athens failed. Because if you look at the speech in Acts 17, he mentions many things. The one thing he doesn't mention is the cross. Whereas the thing he focuses on relentlessly in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 is the cross. The Greeks have wisdom and so on, and we, we preach the foolishness of the cross. So in other words, an attempt to preach the gospel without focusing upon the crucified was bound to fail. So in Corinth, the cross is proclaimed and a community is founded. Paul also comes to this sense of the absolute centrality of the cross because of his own experience of suffering, rejection, persecution. The cross seemed to be defeat, but in fact it was victory. And Paul will come to see his own defeats, seeming defeats, as a kind of victory, a victory of the same kind. See, Paul will spend a lot of his time in prison. He spends years in prison. But when you read the Acts of the Apostles, what you see is that his imprisonment was in fact part of his mission. He says it in Philippians at one stage, he says, I, I've come to see 
that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. What does he mean? Imprisonment. He dictates Philippians in prison. And he says that my imprisonment, which was intended to shut me up and stop me in my tracks, has only served to advance the gospel. The very th- Every attempt to stop Paul in his tracks and shut him up only gave him and his, imp- his uh, mission greater impetus. The more you tried to stop him, the more you spurred him on. It's the logic of the cross. They crucified Jesus to, to finish with him, get him out of the way, and all they do is provoke the thunder of the resurrection. Talk about caught on the backswing. But it's the, Paul sees the same thing, the same thing emerging in the warp and woof of his own experience. Rejection, suffering, persecution only give his mission, his word, greater impetus and make him more evidently the one who is the revelation, doesn't just speak it, but actually lives it. Eventually, here again, following the story, Paul goes back to Jerusalem, he's arrested there, he appeals to Caesar, and he is taken eventually via Malta, where he's shipwrecked, he's taken to Rome and placed under house arrest. For some time, The tradition has it he was under house arrest on the Aventine Hill in Rome in the house that belonged to Prisca and Aquila who are mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. It may be true a lot of these old traditions are more reliable than we think. It may well be that he was released from that first house imprisonment and there is again an old and who knows perhaps reliable tradition that Paul then went to Spain. There's a tradition in the Spanish city of Saragossa that Paul actually visited there and he certainly wanted to go to Spain. He says that. Did he make it? I don't know. It's not impossible that he was released from a first house imprisonment, went to Spain, came back to Rome, then he was imprisoned again and he was executed as part of the persecution under Nero. That is certain. Peter and Paul were both executed under, under Nero in the mid-60s. Peter was crucified in, in Caligula's Circus, in really just what is St Peter's Square now. And the last thing he probably saw in life it would have been the obelisk that now stands in the middle of St Peter's Square. It wasn't in that position, but it was the needle in the Circus of Caligula where Peter was executed. So it's a fascinating thought that the last thing Peter saw in life was that obelisk that stands right in the middle of St Peter's Square now. St Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. That was considered a more humane way to be executed in those days. And he was executed on the way out to the port of Ostia. Uh, His body was taken by his friends and disciples and buried in what became Lavinia's Vineyard, what was Lavinia's Vineyard, where now St Paul's outside the wall stands, the Basilica. Now, whatever about his burial, come back to his execution. The story is, t- the, the, the place of his execution is called Tre Fontane in Italian, Three Fountains. And it's called that because the story is told that when Paul was executed, had his head chopped off, the apostolic head bounced three times. Boing, boing, boing. And each time it bounced, up came a fountain. 
Now you're probably sitting there saying, well, what a load of rubbish. I actually believe it, but let me say what I believe. I don't think if I was, I was standing there watching this execution that I would have seen that. But the story tells the truth of what happened, gets at the meaning of that death. See, Paul had suffered many wounds through life. He says, I was given the 39 lashes five times, I was beaten with sticks, I was stoned. Paul had all kinds of wounds. He must have looked an absolute mess when he was finally executed. And the last and greatest of his wounds was when he got his head chopped off. That's the ultimate wound, I think you'd agree. But it didn't stop him. In fact, it was his martyrdom that it was intended to silence him for good. They tried everything else and it hadn't worked. This was the final solution. Chop his head off. But you see, the ultimate wound became the ultimate fountain, three-fold fountain, springing up all around the world. Because that execution ensured that the voice of Paul will resound until doomsday and into eternity. The last attempt to stop him only gave him an impetus that will last forever. It's the same pattern. So in his death, he is absolutely configured to Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That's when he becomes finally the fullness of the revelation. He becomes Jesus crucified and risen. Let me conclude by just saying this. To many in his own time, Paul looked a loser. But when you open the New Testament now, you have the impression that he was a triumphant winner. And you go to the great basilica over his tomb in Lavinia's vineyard, and there's the great statue in the atrium, like Cecil B. de Mille presents St. Paul. And, and the inscription on the pedestal is Ave Doctor Gentium, Ave, what is it? Hail, teacher of the nations, hail, preacher of the truth. What was the truth he preached? It was the truth about the church. See, the question with Paul is why the loser won? Because he did win. Why did the loser win? Because he was right. He spoke the truth about the church and enacted the truth of the church in his mission. The church wasn't just another Jewish sect. The church can pay the most profound respects to Judaism, recognising, as it were, our parentage. But we are born from the womb of the synagogue and the umbilical cord is cut. Paul the Jew was right about the church. And in the end, that's why the loser won. Barnabas plummets off into the black hole. Peter is still there, and Peter and Paul were united in death in a way that they were not in life. Both died in Rome. And in martyrdom, they find their way finally to each other beyond all the divisions and disagreements because they find their way to a perfect configuration to Jesus. In becoming Jesus in their death, they find their way to one another. And that's why we have one feast day for Peter and Paul, not two. Why we have their memory celebrated in one city, Rome, the city where they died, 
and why in Christian icons so often Peter and Paul are represented together, not apart. But they were only together finally in death when they become the Lord crucified and risen. But that crowns a whole process through their life. If I ask myself here tonight, what can Paul teach us about living biblically in a secular age? I'll just say quickly four things. First of all, the need to communicate. Paul was a great marketer. It's a trivial way of saying what I'm trying to say. He, he clearly learnt the art of communicating in a way that people of another culture could understand. Very often in the church, though, we talk a language people don't understand. We understand it, and we think it's marvellous, beautiful and powerful. It's just that others don't understand it. We may as well talk Russian. Paul faced the same kind of thing. But he, he was able to communicate in a way that people understood in both word and action, he was able to do that. So how do we do that in a secular age where very often people do not share our assumptions, they don't share our, our, our imaginative and spiritual and intellectual world perhaps, they have a, a different vocabulary, but they're the ones we're trying to touch. So we have to find a way of communicating to them. This is a question, I hasten to add, not unrelated to the Synod in October, the need to find a, the right set of words and images that can touch into people's lives and really communicate. But that's the first thing. The second thing was that the absolute necessity of communities if we want to, to encounter the real Jesus. The thing about encountering Jesus on your own, you know, without the troublesome business of community, is that you usually end up finding a Jesus who, who looks and sounds just like you. I find the only guarantee, and I think here I echo Paul, the only guarantee that the Jesus I'm meeting is the real Jesus is that I, I do so not on my own but with you, the church. And the church can be, can be difficult, troublesome and fractious and all those things. But beyond all of that, there is the church which is the body of Christ and that guarantees the authenticity of, of what I judge to be my encounter with you will not meet him unless you are immersed in the experience that Paul calls koinonia. It's a Greek word, means communion. Uh, and where but in a, a flesh and blood community, with all that that entails, can I experience that communion which opens me to the ongoing encounter with the risen Christ. All right? So communities are crucial. The third thing I'd say about living biblically in a secular age is a sense of boldness, going at crossing new frontiers. Get out of your comfort zone. Roll the wagons, don't circle them. Head into new territory where others have not gone. It takes a quality of imagination, but it also takes courage, and that's what I mean by boldness. I mean, Paul, Paul took some breathtaking decisions and great risks, but what, what sustained him in all of that was that sense of the call of Christ. He never loses that sense. So that sense of a boldness rooted in the sense of, of the call and commissioning of Christ, which applies to each one of us no less than it does to Paul. And then the final thing I would say is that to live biblically in, in a secular age will be to suffer the wound. We too will be rejected. 
we too will be persecuted. But what's new about that? Why should it be different for us? Uh, The only thing for us to, to ensure is that we are rejected and persecuted for the right reason, as it were. Not because we're, we're, we're banging people over the head with some clapped-out ideological package, but because we really are preaching the gospel and becoming the gospel. If we do that, then, then we, we must be wounded. We must live the mystery of the Lord's cross. But again, the wound becomes a fountain. So at that point, I I rest this reflection. The question that I finish with this time and that I will begin with in our last meeting is how did we get from Paul's letters to the later Gospels? They're such different texts. What, What was it that allowed Christianity to move from from the Pauline letters, which were only a second string strategy for him. The the first thing he liked to do was go personally to visit the communities. The second option he he preferred was to send one of his key people, Timothy, Sylvanus or whoever. And it was only a third option to write a letter and sometimes give it to one of his, his, his emissaries. But something happened in Christianity as it came to birth, that led us on the great journey from those Pauline letters, which are the earliest texts in the New Testament, to the Gospels, the four texts which changed the world. With that question I finish this evening, and with that question I shall resume next month. Thank you.